HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Bob's Red Mill believes in baking, breakfast, and the pursuit of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's 5 o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Katie Mosman-Wadler, the Executive Director of HRN. Hey, Kat. How's it going, Katie? Ooh, thank you. Trumpets. <laughs> That's air horn, I know, but I just oh like to think God. of trumpets. Trumpet. I know what an air horn is, but like, you know when the, the you know... The archangels come out and the clouds just parted <laughs> for you, Katie. Yeah, I feel really special. <laughs> uh, we have some other special guests today. We do. Uh, we have Matt Wang. Hello. Hi, Matt. Matt and I uh, were our former colleagues. We have a theme going. We had another former colleague last week, Jordan Salcedo. And I'm a former colleague of hers as well. Yes. Interestingly. It's a small world, the it, Momofuku world. It really is. Um, uh, you now are the owner of Metropolitan Plate and Flame. I am indeed. And we will get to that later and hear all about it. Um, and then we also have John Spinks, who is a visual artist. Good afternoon. Hi, John. Um, we're going to talk to you later about Bloomsday and what that is. And I'll just, I'll leave it at that. It's a little teaser. It's a very worthwhile topic. I can't wait. <laughs> and finally, we have Mari Rubin, who is the founder and baker of City Bakery. Hello. Hi, Mari. Nice to be here. Thanks Thank for you. coming. Yep. Um, so we're going to first kick off um, the show with rapid fire headlines from the past week. So should we jump on in? Let's do it. Okay. All right. 
summer in the city means that it's time to find the best places to sip on sweet cocktails, knock back a few beers, or enjoy an evening with friends paired with the perfect bottle or bottles of wine. So for our first headline, cat, we have another uh, pre-recorded episode of Cooking Issues with Dave on the road with the Bartender Advocacy Convention. Bacon. Bacon. Don't forget. Yeah. Bacon. 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 <laughs> uh, this week he's in Pittsburgh with Don Lee, the evil or perhaps benevolent cocktail overlord of the universe. Uh, Kevin Denton, he's the national mixologist for Pernod Ricard and... Um, I'm sorry, and this is a new person now, Brian Bartels, author of The Bloody Mary, The Lore and Legend of a Cocktail Classic with Recipes for Brunch and Beyond. And back in New York for more summer fun, Jimmy Carbone, welcome to Beer Sessions, Jay Steinhauer from Innerborough Ales and Spirits, and both Thomas Desrochet and Caitlin Laloupe. I hope I'm saying that right. Those are some <laughs> fancy names. Laloupe. Um, of the... Hey, hey, hey. Of the <laughs> hey Jimmy of the hey, Long hey. Island City Beer Project, and they discussed which beers are best to help you cool off and let loose this summer. And then to cap off our section of drinking uh, plans for your summer, Joe Campanelli on In the Drink spoke to uh, wine director and partner at the Four Horsemen in Williamsburg, Justin Cherno. He's known for serving some of the most interesting and hard-to-find natural wines in the city. And he also, uh, the Four Horsemen, was named as one of the best restaurants in Williamsburg by New York Magazine. The Four Horsemen is bound to be your next stop for a taste of some of the best natural wines in the world. You should also listen to some back episodes. If you look on our um, search page of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org, you can find a lot of episodes of The Grape Nation and In the Drink about natural wines that are awesome. And I just want to give a shout-out to Four Horsemen because I... I love that restaurant, and I'm probably going to go tomorrow night after the LCD Sound System concert. What? What? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they have, I also want to say, they have a late night yakitori menu at the bar at Four Horsemen. It's so good. Okay, moving on. Next, the food scene takes a look at Julia Sherman's blog-turned-book, Salad for President, a creative culinary and artistic exploration of people's creative processes and their similarities to how we talk to chefs about composing dishes. We see how to transpose leftover lettuce to breakfast tacos with Alice Waters and how a Mizuna salad with kombu tea dressing tacitly comes from one of the loudest bands you've ever heard, showing us that a salad can reflect our innate sense of the world, nourishing us while also giving us much food for thought. And on We Dig Plants, they took a look at the intersection as guest John Cole Kendall, both an heirloom seed saver and classically trained artist, talks about his new documentary, Deeply Rooted, set to premiere at Slow Food Nations in Denver this July. Will you be at the premiere? Uh, I hope so. I'm going to be at Slow Food Nations in Denver, and that sounds like an awesome event to go to. I want to know everything about it. I will let you know. All right. Uh, this week on Recommended Reading with Food Book Fair, we heard from the one and only Mark Rosati. He's the culinary director of everyone's favorite burger bite, Shake Shack. He uh, was talking about discovering how the used-to-be hot dog cart in Madison Square Park became a publicly traded company with locations all over the world and all of your favorite airports. Um, plus a look at the new Shake Shack book, so now you too can make that legendary shroom burger in your very own kitchen. Mm. All right, that's all that it, that's all we have for our headlines this week. There's obviously a lot more that was going on across the network. We have 35 weekly shows. That was just a few headlines um, uh, for this week. Um, so now we're going to go and we're going to turn it over to Matt Wang. Um, <laughs> and we want to hear more about Metropolitan Plate and Flame. What is it? 
That's a good question. It's a it's a real company. It wasn't for <laughs> yeah, a long time. <laughs> it wasn't for a long time, but now it is. Um, so basically, it's it's just uh, a guy who's gone through almost every kitchen and almost every back of house in New York City, who wants to have his own thing, who's learned from the best and wants to open some great restaurants. I'm working on my first project, which will be announced soon. Um, and the goal is to have what I call a federated restaurant group, which is a restaurant group not unlike what exists now. But we're going to partner with people all over the country and hopefully all over the world. It's my way of taking the great people and smart people that I've come across in my time and saying, let's do this together and let's do this better. So it's a nothing short of world domination. Nice. I mean, you... You're saying you're you're moving from the the single hustle to the multi hustle, and you work really hard, and you work, I'm sure, insane hours. So you clearly love the business. Why why did you fall in love with the restaurant business? I originally fell in love with the restaurant business because, like everybody else, I wanted to be a pirate, and uh, working <laughs> yeah, in a restaurant is being sort of uh, indoctrinated into piracy in a lot of different ways. Um, originally, that was my draw, watching food shows on TV. I always really loved it, and it just turned into something that I really wanted to do. I worked in hotels, large and small. I've opened three dozen restaurants, something like oh my that. God. Um, so it's, it's a sickness. It's a sickness I wouldn't tell anybody to go into, ever, because <laughs> it's, it's not a good scene. Um, what are your... What is to you the best part and the worst part of the restaurant opening process? Um, all right, the worst part is all of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> every, every single second of it is is terrible and painful. Um, I think I think Maury probably knows that better than anybody because he's done it a lot of times too. Um, the best part, though, and I'm going to get hokey for a second. Uh, anytime I go into a restaurant opening, I say to everybody that there's a moment where. The first service is about to happen, and the lights are low for the first time, and the candles are lit for the first time, and the music is at the right level, and you've been practicing, and you've been killing yourself for this, and you step back and you say, wow, we made this thing. And you've you've made a world that, for all intents and purposes, if things go well, will never change. Will never, will ne- well, it'll change in a lot of ways, but it'll it'll be there forever. You know, I worked at Del Posto. That restaurant's going to be there forever. And I was there months before it opened. Um, same thing with the Standard Hotel. Just a million places. To me, that's the thing. There's a first moment where you're establishing this, this, this ship that's going to sail, and it's never coming back. <laughs> and that feeling is really, really powerful. Yeah. Mari, what, about, what do you think about that? Is that your feeling well, with opening uh, restaurants? Um, well, I open bakeries. I'm a bakery person, and... Restaurants are actually the R word to me. Like, we're like City Bakery is not a restaurant. It's Got it. a, and 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 that's important because, and this is a diversion. But like, as a pastry chef and baker, uh, if I my brethren pastry chefs in restaurants are that's different. That's a different world than me. And when they think that we do the same thing, we don't because uh, a baker, a retail bakery, is just it's a different creature of a food business. But um, to, to the description by Matt. I mean, it's, I love his, uh, it's creation. You know, you boil it down and you, it's creation. You really, you get to create, um, you get to devise the, this, uh, you know, this world that has <clears throat> food and design and spirit and heart and, um, 
uh, people get to come in. Uh, people get to come in and behold and partake, and that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. That's that's the that's what it, it, you know. Disease is one word. I would say just like a bad gene, um, <laughs> and but that's the beauty of it, and I think that's what keeps you there's definitely a glutton factor to it you're just at, at some point you know you say to your hopefully you say to yourself because um, it's worse if you don't um, but at some point you say to yourself like this is um you know like i'm a glutton for this it, it's a blood sport it's like mercenary work <laughs> it, there, and, there, there's also something funny because you know i've been working on this project and sitting there overseeing all these spreadsheets for hundreds of hours and it's a little bit like like being a fortune teller you're sitting there and you're looking at this. Well, how many people are going to come in and how much are they going to spend and how much space do I have? And, you know, you're going to see it into the future and you're going to make sure that actually happens. You're going to shepherd it into reality. It's pretty neat. Wow. So, tell Maury, can you tell me about opening the first city bakery? Um, I can tell you about walk about literally opening the door the first day of construction of the first city bakery and just like the moment, like literally just seeing, seeing like dust flying and it was Greenwich Carpet World at 22 East 17th Street before it became City Bakery. <laughs> and I just, I, I can tell you, sure, I can tell you every single thing <laughs> that you want to know, but I can remember the, like the first instant of opening door, the door on the first day of construction and there was dust flying and there was shit being pulled down from the ceiling and stuff all over the place. And from that moment on, sure, I can tell you basically every inch for 26 <laughs> years. Yeah. What else, what else do you want? <laughs> what else do you want to well, know? <laughs> so you're going to be opening up a city bakery in Detroit. It's true. And that's going to be the first city bakery outside of New York City that's not in Japan. Correct. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. Just what a like, bizarre... But no. <clears throat> How many do you have in Japan? Seven. And wow. wh- what made you decide to go to Japan before... Expanding the, the so the backstory of City Bakery Japan is um, I learned to bake in France in 1986, and when I was an apprentice in a couple of different bakeries in Paris in 1986, the other apprentices were Japanese, mm-hmm. and at that point, I discovered that the great French pastry shops were also in Tokyo, and the the um, the paradigm here is that the Japanese are francophiles. They covet French luxury goods. They include fine French pastry on that list of French luxury goods, which is a wonderful, special, cool thing. Um, so for a long time, there's a precedent of the great French, and this is just French food in general, when they wanted to expand... They would go east. They wouldn't come here, um, at least on the pastry side. Um, and I also think there's a cool, uh, there's a, um, I think there's a story of Gaston Lenotre, who's the greatest French pastry chef in the history of French pastry, who's no longer alive, but Lenotre is a series of pastry shops um, in Paris. He came to the States in the 1970s and failed. And I actually think that that was a touchstone moment for, I think, every French pastry person 
looked at that and said, well, Jesus, we're, we're not going back there. <laughs> so the French have gone east to Japan for, for a long, long, long time. And when I opened City Bakery, the day I opened City Bakery, um, Japanese people walked in the door. And Japanese people in New York, whether they lived here or were visiting here, they read my story that there's, there's this guy who, uh, I was a TV producer and director, who went to Paris and learned to bake. So they knew I was French pastry trained, and they showed up at City Bakery. And there's been Japanese people walking to City Bakery ever, ever since. And fast forward 15, 18 years, <laughs> it's, it's funny because now there's, it, it, it's a huge business. There's, there's seven city bakeries in Tokyo, Osaka, and Fukuoka, and there's more to come. There's probably going to be 25 city bakeries in Japan in like four or five more years. And it's growing and it's done very, very well. And people say to me, like, how did you come up, how did you come up with the idea of like, um, you know, of, of taking the city bakery to Japan? And I really, when I hear that, I think, well, actually, it took me like, 18 to 20 years to figure out that there's more Japanese in Japan than there are in New York. And so um, just five years ago, I started working on going there, and I went there and met with a bunch of people. They were excited. I found a licensed partner, and we opened up, and it's done very well. So what, why is the next one in Detroit? Um, <laughs> because Detroit people are Francophiles now. Um, <laughs> Detroit people are Japanophiles. And therefore, Francophiles, <laughs> therefore you fit in. Um, the next one in Detroit is because I think it has something to do with uh, it's a combination of the end of New, the, the end of New York um, and the the rebirth of Detroit. Um, you know, creatively, uh, Detroit is having a uh, it's it's in a period of rebirth. There's a ton of investment. There's um, there's a thought about great food. There's not great. Uh, not, there's not. I want to be careful here. There's not. There's not too much great food yet. But you can look at Detroit and you can see all the excitement building around it creatively. You can see where food will become integral to how the city is redeveloped. And on the bakery front. Um, I'm excited about the chance to move into a city that is so excited about itself and what's happening, um, and it it feels like a chance to uh, to start over in a really exciting way. Without a doubt, um, I've spent a little bit of time there with I went with Marcus Tamison a couple of times, and I've developed a couple of good friends out there, and it's amazing. You go to small restaurants and you see guys that are. You know, they're buying property and opening restaurants. Right. They're mm -hmm. buying full buildings and re rebuilding them into new restaurants. Right. When does, when does that happen in New York for a first-time business owner? Right. Well, New York, that's what I mean. I mean, <clears throat> New York in, in, many in many ways is just so impossible and just so vexing right now that there is a certain there's a certain beauty of being able to step outside of it and go to some place where it's it's a wide open opportunity um the economics are um they're just viable and there's not a lot about new york right now where you can look at uh, the basic economics and say that's going to bear out you, i'm, I'm going to go in a completely different direction do you have a shop in cb3 in in manhattan community board three no 
Okay. Where, well, because uh, Community Board Three is doing—they're—they're they're trying to come up with new rules to create a better situation for first-time business owners uh-huh. um, via having stringent rules around uh, national chains coming into certain blocks, right, and right. it's also—it's affecting bars and restaurants to a certain degree. They're having stricter regulations about liquor licensing and whatever. Um, my question to you was going to be, do you think something like that would help first time business owners and small business owners develop? But if you're not in CB3, it's sort of irrelevant. You know, part of the, part of the issue, part of the challenge is obviously rent, but there's another, there's another, just the, the, the simple dynamic of there's so much idiotic, uh, competition that if I were to count, City Bakery opened in 1990. It was, in, it was on 17th Street for 11 years. It's been on 18th Street ever since. The number of places that if you walk from the, the Union Square subway to City Bakery today, the number of places where you can stop and get pastry and coffee or salad or sandwich that didn't exist even three years ago and then five years ago and then seven years ago is such a it's a crazy exponentially damning number and it's an impossible number so that you get to the place where even if you're busy even if you're beloved even if you're really popular you have long time to I, city bakery has long time to order customers like I, I would bet that <clears throat> it's one of the things that i think is is the great accomplishment of city bakery is that people uh embrace it in generations for two generations so far and and even that is that's a core that's my core and that is a, a a blessing but just the number of places that you can go to eat walking down the street and that's before you get to <laughs> to breeds and postmates and try caviar blah 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 so it, all of that in new york it's just it's such a noose right now and that's part of where you know a place like detroit uh which is it's an hour away by airplane um <clears throat> I'm not suggesting delivery to Detroit that way. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it's close enough for me from as a business point of view, as an operations point of view, to be able to believe I can manage it. And um, it just, again, it just feels like it's a new landscape. And that part feels really exciting. Mm. Maury, I want to talk a little bit more about you and your story. You are the founder of City Bakery. You have so many locations. You have a book. You founded a hot chocolate festival that has 50,000 attendees. But I'm not sure if everybody knows this. You also have two Emmys. How I does do. that happen? <laughs> what? <laughs> um, uh, <clears throat> well, before I was, I grew up in Baltimore and I was a sports crazy kid. And back in the day, um, Baltimore was a great sports town back then. It's still a great sports town, but the teams are better then. Um, and I wanted to do sports um, on TV or radio. And, I, you know, this is – I was thinking when I sat down here. So in college, when I, 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 did, I went to the University of Maryland. I was the play-by-play announcer for Maryland football, basketball, and lacrosse. And I think this is the first time I've been sitting in it with a microphone and headphones since, like, my senior year at uh, Maryland. Wow, doing wow. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I didn't have a glass of orange wine back then. It's better with orange wine, It's right? better with orange wine. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's what I wanted to do when I, as I was growing up. I, I, did, not have, I did not have butter, um, sugar, and eggs in my, in my head back then. That's what I wanted to be. I wanted to do sports in some form of broadcast. Uh-huh. And um, so I did radio in college. 
uh, I was hired out of uh, I was hired by ABC TV to uh, to be a, a PA production assistant. Um, I came to New York. I made uh, eighteen thousand five hundred dollars a year in uh, nineteen eighty January of nineteen eighty two. <clears throat> I worked for um, Howard Cosell, who uh, it's bizarre because. Most of my staff, for example, has no idea who he was, but he was a living legend, and he was a very, very <laughs> um, important, fabulous, historic person in sports uh, broadcasting. So he was my one and only boss, and I worked. I worked for Howard for five and a half years. Howard, Howard retired. I, by then, was smitten with food. Um, it was a chicken salad sandwich at Carnegie Deli that started it. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, and... Um, uh, and when Howard retired, I started thinking about. I, I was obsessed. I became obsessed with food, and I was also on a on a expense account for ABC Sports, traveling around the country, and I would stay in fancy hotels and eat really good food. And that led me into thinking about uh, this food thing is pretty cool. Do you do a Cosell impression? I, I, I'm one of the four percent of the human population that does not do Howard. <laughs> does not do, yeah, you know. but that's because I spent uh, seven days a week with him for five and a half years. So I don't, yeah. Well, I think we'll take a quick break. Um, Mari was so kind to bring us some treats from City Bakers. Oh, no, that's so right. We're, I think we'll have have a little taste during the commercial. Sound good? That's a great idea. Okay, we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes, but also their... Chef Eric from Roberta's Radio. I love eating pizza for every meal, but sometimes I've got to branch out. Bob's Red Mill makes some stellar breakfast foods. Hey, Eric, the food in your big, bright, beautiful breakfast bowl looks delicious. Thanks. It's muesli. Muesli? Nah, muesli. It's like raw granola. You should try it. Uh, I don't know. My rich daddy buys me quail eggs and foie gras for breakfast every morning. Well, let me hip you on to something else. Did you know Bob's Red Mill is a flagship sponsor of Heritage Radio Network? I bet you if we call Bob himself, he can convince you. Hi, Bob here. Wait, is this the man from the muesli package? Yes, I'm Bob Moore. How can I help you? Uh, hey there, Bob. This is Eric from Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Mike, who I'm trying to convince to try muesli. Oh, I love muesli. Muesli such an easy way to start the day. I can take a bag of muesli and munch on it in my car and get full whole grain nutrition for everything I need for at least half the day. That is incredible. But what the heck is in the muesli anyway? It has rolled oats, uh, rolled wheat, rolled barley, rolled triticale, and, uh, of course, our dried fruits and the seeds that are so important to our health. It's one of my very, very favorites. After Bob's glowing recommendation, you going to try it? Like they say, try it. You'll like it. All right. Let me at that muesli. 
By the way, you can find more delicious whole grain breakfast ideas at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. I'll check that out. I'll surf over there. Surf on over, dude. Welcome back. Um, we all just had a cookie break, and I'm still, I'm still, still finishing mine. Cookie break. Um, so, really quick, Matt, you are a cookie expert. I'm incredibly passionate about chocolate chip cookies. Do you want to weigh in on the City Bakery cookies and or let us know more in detail about what makes you a cookie expert? That is a delicious chocolate chip cookie. I cannot give it a formal rating right now. A, because we're sitting in front of the owner. And B, because I only ate half of a cookie. I would have to eat an entire cookie. Um, and there's a very special way that I need to approach it for my rating system. Um, what is the way um, to eat the cookie? Usually walking down the street. Um, okay. So uh, I love chocolate chip cookies. I started to... I've started to eat. I started eating them when I was a child. <laughs> As, um, That's so weird. But, <laughs> but I got really into them because I stopped drinking coffee, and chocolate became very important to me because it was one of the few ways I could get caffeine. So when someone would go for an afternoon coffee break, I would travel around the city trying to find good chocolate chip cookies for my little pick me up. So I started to take pictures of them and, and I uh, give them little reviews on Instagram, which people seem to like, which is weird, but people like it, um, <laughs> because everybody likes chocolate chip cookies. Um, my rating for them is very particular, because I'm, I rate them based on what my perfect cookie is, and uh, so it's not for everybody, it's just what I like. So you see, I feel like we're different in what we like, because I like basically, I, I like all cookies, but I really like cookies that are basically still raw. Mm. We're not that different. I oh, like okay. them, yeah. Mm-hmm. I like them when they're basically still raw. I also like them to be very dense and heavy. Um, So, yeah, when I bake cookies, I basically, I I deeply (laughs) underbake them and then put them directly into the freezer so I can always eat a raw cookie. It's just the gooiness. Yeah. So good. Better than my process of putting them directly into my mouth (laughs) until they're gone. Just straight up raw. Yeah. Yeah. No no even fake baking it. There's no, like, like, storage of cookies in my house. (laughs) All right, well, I now want to turn to our third guest, um, John Spinks, who is a visual artist. And, John, before we get more into James Joyce and Ulysses and the celebration of Bloomsday, can you tell us a little bit more about your artwork? Oh, um, well, it's relevant to Joyce in the sense that I work a lot with text and language. I I was a, a late vocation to the visual arts. I was a teacher of English and drama for many years, you know, 
in Margaret Thatcher's penal system. And, um, you know, that's what <laughs> took me out of it. Um, and then I came to the land of the free. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, I still have, you know, reservations about that recently. But uh, anyway, um, the passion for language and um, literature has stayed with me. And uh, this city and this country has been good to me, you know, because if you change careers, you know, I could have stayed in England and I could have been in the academic tradition. I could have gone down that road, but I had revelation. And uh, you want to go somewhere else where they you have no background, and New York's great for that. You can get educated here. And I was re-educated. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've worked for a couple of what, what we laughingly call blue-chip artists, you know, and I got an education there, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I had never been to art college, and yet I, here I was. I thought I'd be an illustrator when I first came here because, you know, I had language and I had a, a visual sensibility and, I, you know, I thought I could... But gradually, I drifted into the fine arts. Mm. And uh, I have absolutely no regrets about that. So you have a background in literature, though, and that's it's pretty apparent in talking to you that that's a deep love of yours. So tell us what Bloomsday is. Well, okay. Part of the reason for my passion for it is I was born in Ireland. I was born on the West Coast, right? And, you know... The oral tradition is very much alive in that culture. It's in, alive in many, you know, African-American culture, the oral tradition is alive. You know, you can look everywhere. But the Irish are particularly good at it. Ordinary people speak poetry in Ireland. You know, my mother, I can remember my mother, she'd look at a woman who, you know, wasn't... She might have been mutton-dressed as lamb or something, Right. And um, <laughs> my mother would look at the woman and she'd say, if she were killed for beauty, she would die an innocent death. You know, and that's what <laughs> my mother would say. And then my uncle Paddy, if a woman had good legs, he'd say, she has great understanding. <laughs> and, and what I love about that is it's playing with language. And you see, Joyce, the reason Joyce is a great writer is because he had the ear. He was able to listen. And tomorrow is the 16th of June. And the reason we celebrate that is because it was the first day that he had a date with the woman who was to be... You know, there's a great woman behind every man. Well, Joyce chose this... Well, maybe she chose him because she stood him up the first time. <laughs> letters, there are letters to prove this. She didn't turn up the first time, and he went back for more. And I, it's pretty certain that on the first date, Nora, she was from Galway, right? She left school at 12. Now, here she is meeting with a giant of the avant-garde, a, you know, somebody who went on to achieve mythological status in, lit- in literature, this is a girl who left school at 12. She was a chambermaid in Dublin. And on her first date with Joyce, it's pretty much certain that she took some kind of sexual initiative. 
And, Whoa. You know, <laughs> we'll not go into any details, but he came back for more, right? <laughs> no, well, that's fair enough. But as, as, as one does. Well, I mean, right. Yeah, but <laughs> the great thing about it is, here's this girl, you know, from Galway, like from a farming background. She meets up with, a, you know, a giant of contemporary literature, uh, you know, a groundbreaking person. What is it? They go off to Trieste. Now, think about Ireland at that time, 1904. You know, Catholic Ireland. Off they go. They don't get married. She goes with him to Trieste. Now, 20 years later, she's in Paris hanging out with Gertrude Stein, Ezra Pound, um, <laughs> you know, Ernest Hemingway, because he'd come a long way. Mm-hmm. But she, you know, they, she bore him two children. So what he sets his book on the day they had their first date. And to me, that's deeply significant, you know, because... People think that Joyce's Ulysses is this, you know, towering edifice. It's hard to read. But Joyce was a singer. He could sing. His father was a great singer, too. And they were, he understood that the, the language and music are very close. You know, you hear a person, a, any person with a decent voice speaking, you know, and it gets close to music sometimes. And when the Irish get going, you know, with a few drinks in them, <laughs> I mean, you can hear it. And uh, so that's the tradition that it comes out of. And the 16th of June, I'm happy to say, is my daughter's birthday. Oh, you know wow. how things, wow. you know, things work out sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, you know, I was already like a Joyce head. <laughs> and then along comes my daughter, and she's born on Bloomsday. So every year it comes around. <laughs> and if anybody does any research, you know, tomorrow, globally, in Dublin, in Australia, all over the place, you know, they will celebrate it as if it was some kind of religious feast. Which to me it is in a way, but it's only a book. <laughs> and my problem is I've only got a short time here, and we've got a 700-page book. Right. You know, it's like War and Peace or something. But anyway, that's, you know, I'm not going to rest my case there, but I mean, that's my kickoff. Introduction. Yeah. And yeah. John, what year, more or less, or do you know the year that... Um, James and Nora were on their first date. What's the anniversary that we're celebrating? I would think it would be around 1904. I'm very poor on dates. Mm -hmm. But just to give our listeners an idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, yeah. So it's, you know, it's early on. Yeah. You know, it's Ireland was very stiff at that time. Mm. So we're we're more or less 100 years on from the the date that we're celebrating the anniversary of. Yeah. And... how are people marking the occasion? Well, in Dublin, people read... The interesting thing about the book is it has a classical structure, right? By that, all the action takes place in one day, which is, you know, for anybody who's done hallucinogenics, you know, one day can become an epic. And, you know, it took him seven years to write it, but he used a classical framework... The original Ulysses took seven years. You know, he was he, he, the war in Troy was over, and he was wandering around, and he encountered, you know, a lot of 
the sirens, mm-hmm. the cyclops, <laughs> you know, the, the the bag of winds, you know, which there's a bit of that here today. But um <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> uh no, don't laugh too much because then I'll lose my thread. <laughs> Those are your words, not yeah, ours. Right, exactly. <laughs> but um, it. Um, now, what was your question again? <laughs> oh, how are people marking the occasion? What, oh, what, are you, right. what are you doing tomorrow? Well, uh, I'll call my daughter for a start. That's good. And then I'll scout around. Uh, for many years, I, I used to read at Symphony Space. Uh, Isaiah, Isaiah Schaefer, who's passed away now, you know, he, would, he was a passionate Joyce man. And people would turn up, you know, some great... Like, I read with Stephen Colbert there one time, oh, wow. before he was at the crest he is now. But and I, you don't get much time to rehearse. It's a bit like this. You know, you get your script, you come in, and you, and you don't know who you're getting. And suddenly I was up there with Stephen Colbert and he was playing the part of Stephen and I had my lines and we clicked and we were off and running. And it was a beautiful thing. And that interests me, the afterlife of a work of art. Because Joyce was an arrogant... I mean, he, was, he knew he was good. But in his wildest dreams, he couldn't have imagined that all over the world on the 16th of June, year after year, people do this. And, uh, you know, in Dublin they'll walk around, they'll dress in Edwardian costume and this, that, and the other. And in New York they will too. Mm -hmm. And people will read from the book. And that aspect of a work of art fascinates me. I sent my daughter for her birthday a pair of socks with... The Hokusai wave on, you know, the Japanese artist, Mm -hmm. you know. And Hokusai, when he did the wave, he didn't expect them to be on a pair of socks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe not. He didn't own a pair of socks. (laughs) Right, yeah. But, but, you know, that afterlife thing, like the munch scream, Mm -hmm. you you could get a a T-shirt, you could get a tea towel. You could get your manicure painted with it Right, you could. You could. And, and, And that aspect of art interests me because you can't tell how it's going to drift you know and which way it's going to go I, I went to a I, I went to a Bloomsday event in Philadelphia, uh-huh. right. in Philadelphia once and it was a big drink up people were really banging them back it's is, is it like a is it like a drinking game in there well, like Joyce when, himself when something happens you chug is <laughs> you know Joyce himself you know he was on the drip as they say. <laughs> but he endured a lot of pain. I mean, you know how it is. If it works for you, you'll do it. It smiles to the gallon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, to mark the occasion, John, do you have something to read for us? Well, I do, but I mean... It's. Uh, I wasn't ready for that, but I can reach oh, well, into the well, bag. I don't want to throw you under the bus or anything. Oh but. no, no, no! I. This is connected to the afterlife, but this is going to. This is kind of serious. Oh boy! We can be. I'm going to take a drink. It's, it's a short thing. We can be serious for yeah. for a brief time. <clears throat> well, because then it, after this, I want to talk about. We, you guys were talking earlier about mm-hmm. your connection between like 
the dead, dead, Grateful Dead and music connection. So I want to talk about that too at the end of the show. Oh, okay. Well, I better hurry up. Then. <laughs> and um, we have a game. Oh, and we have trivia. We have a few trivia questions for you guys. Mm-hmm. Which I think one, I think you kind of ruined one of the questions already. Who? Maybe. I think we maybe gave it away. Oh dear. It, it'll it'll be okay. The okay. question was, who owns City Baker? <laughs> <laughs> who alert. wrote Ulysses? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, one thing I did want to ask, um, you guys were talking earlier about Thelonious Monk, and Mari, you play that in City Bakery a bit, and I think both the other guys were talking about how that was like a big deal to them as well. Well, first of all, that's a strange, that's a strange and wonderful connection, because, yeah, <clears throat> fist bumps on radios don't work. You know? <laughs> um, Insert fist bump sound effect. <laughs> um... But uh, uh, the, the playlist for City Bakery, to the detriment of my uh, many longtime staff, is what, it, what would be called the jazz standards um, from Louis Armstrong and um, Thelonious Monk and um, <clears throat> Sonny Rollins, Penn Webster, Coleman Hawkins. Um, and, but Thelonious Monk is, uh, in a single expression, the, to me, the the sort of spirit of thought, of thought of what City Bakery is. And, and when I first heard, you know, there's a, there's a Louis Armstrong quote about Thelonious Monk, which is the first time he heard it, um, he called it uh, Chinese music. Um, because it's just, it's so, uh, it's, it's, it's not melodic, and it's hard. It's, it steps over here and there, and then goes there and there. What the, hell's ha- what the hell's happening here? And what is that music? And it was not, it was... You know, like Dizzy Gillespie was a friendlier version of taking jazz, making it sound a little bit uh, just... uh, I'll go with you. I'll go with you. Because the beauty of Monk is he swings. You know, no matter how far out he goes, he still swings. But he was blessed with a good rhythm section, and he was blessed with Charlie Rouse, which brings me back to Nora, because Charlie Rouse was like a wife to Thelonious Monk uh-huh. in the sense it was a horse and carriage you know that horn he understood Monk that's why he worked with him for so long and you know it's just that reciprocity and you get that you're lucky if you get it in the marriage you know just, uh, for, 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 my, for the city bakery part where Thelonious Monk fits in because uh, I, I don't want to drift away but, don't know. but what, city, what I wanted City Bakery to be when I first opened up was was a, a different approach to a bakery and just just brand new. Think about this differently. Everybody's everybody grew up in a bakery. Everybody has a bakery in their childhood. Bakeries go are tradition bound and go back forever and ever. And what I wanted to do with City Bakery was uh, uh, disrupt the notion of here's what you know about a bakery. And in that way, Thelonious Monk is for me the exp- the best musical expression of City Bakery. Mm. Amen. <laughs> well, I feel like this whole chat has really made me want to actually try reading Ulysses because I've never been brave enough to try. I think what I should do is go buy a copy and try to read it at City Bakery <laughs> while eating cookies That's so good. and listening and to the <laughs> and listening to the It just sounds really great right now. Sounds like a nice afternoon. Yeah. yeah. Get away from the summer heat for a day. Well, I think it's time for trivia. 
Are you guys ready? 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 So nervous. You should be. There are three questions. I don't have a chance. I didn't have a chance to get nervous. Yeah. Um, so we, our awesome intern team helps us come up, helps us come up with some trivia questions and, um, you know, we, we try to tie it into a little bit of the, the themes, things we've been talking about. So, you know, I think you'll have a bit of an idea. Um, okay. So question number one, what ancient civilization first started making a form of hot chocolate as early as 460? Yes. Ringer. Okay. Easy. Too easy. So easy. Um, yeah, that's totally right. Great. Um, Do you, can we talk about the recipe and then maybe we can like yeah. talk about another recipe? Yeah. <laughs> so um, this says a Mayan tomb from the site of Rio Azul, Guatemala. Is that Guatemala? Yeah. Had vessels with the Maya glyph for cacao on them with a residue of a chocolate drink. To make the drink, which was served cold, which we were talking about cold hot chocolate earlier. Um, isn't that cold chocolate? Yes. It's cold hot chocolate. We, cold hot chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was served cold. Uh, they ground the cocoa seeds into a paste and mixed it with water, cornmeal, chili peppers, and other ingredients. Then They then poured the drink back and forth from a cup to a pot until a thick foam developed. Yum. Is Do that a have, question? Well, no? I have a oh, question. No, just, I have yeah. a question for you. Oh. Do you have a summer drinking chocolate recipe that you could share in rough form? Um, it's I, I like darker chocolate for summer t- for as a cold drink, and I'm not I'm not a dark chocolate snob, but um, but I really like darker chocolate, which means uh, by a percentage seventy percent, uh, seventy to eighty percent, and. Um, there's no recipe. It's it's melt some really really good seventy something percent dark chocolate, um, melt it down. Uh, you can you can make it like milk and cream. You can make it uh, add a lot of coffee. Add cold brew to it. That's a mm. yummy something. Add a little uh, bitterness. I've had uh, like a cold chocolate where they steep uh, cocoa nibs. And it's sort of like like coffee, but they're using co- coconut. It's right. a very interesting drink. Yeah, it actually has a ton of caffeine in it as well. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which you, nice. you you need? Which I need, but I don't drink coffee. So <laughs> I took two sips and started to shit. <laughs> All right, exciting. Yum. Thank so you. we'll do our next question. Which epic tale of homecoming and adventure is Joyce's Ulysses based on? John, well. you're not allowed to answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, maybe well, you are. It's hot to trot. <laughs> Oh, we know a lot. We know What it. is it? Tell us. Yeah, it's Homer. Yeah, the Odyssey. Um, all right. So. I was cracking up over here a second ago because on our script, it definitely says, by homie. <laughs> <laughs> it does say, oh, by What homie. up, homie? The, the homeboy. <laughs> Your homeboy. Yeah. Um, so this sounds like a good time now to do... Do you want to do your reading now? I will. And yes. this is another example of what I you know, was talking about earlier is that afterlife. Because this is an extract from a poem by Seamus Heaney called Station Island. And in the poem, he imagines meeting Joyce, which, you know, it, it, it has a beauty to it because it's a writer from another generation paying homage to one who went before. So I'll just kick off with this, right? Like a convalescent, I took the hand stretched down from the jetty 
I sensed again an alien comfort as I stepped on the ground to find the helping hand still gripping mine, fish-cold and bony, but whether to guide or to be guided, I could not be certain. For the tall man in step at my side seemed blind, though he walked straight as a rush upon his ash plant, his eyes fixed straight ahead. Then I knew him in the flesh, out there on the tarmac among the cars, wintered hard and sharp as a blackthorn bush, his voice eddying with the vowels of all rivers. Came back to me, though he did not speak yet, a voice like a prosecutor's or a singer's, cunning, narcotic, mimic. Definite as a steel's nib downstroke, quick and clean. Suddenly he hit a litter basket with his stick, saying, Your obligation is not discharged by any common right. What you must do must be done on your own. So get back in harness. The main thing is to write for the joy of it. Cultivate a work lust that imagines its haven like your hands at night, dreaming the sun in the sunspot of a breast. You are fasted now, light-headed, dangerous. Take off from here. Don't be so earnest. Let others wear the sackcloth and the ashes. Let go, let fly, forget. You've listened long enough. Now strike your note. Cook. Cook. Blend. <laughs> yeah. All right. That was great. I wasn't expecting the inspirational turn <laughs> from the beginning. <laughs> well, but it's that. I mean, there's Heaney, who w- was a Nobel Prize winner, mm. paying homage to, you know, a master. And, and, and I think that's what, I mean, you, that's what we're all about is. What went before is where you, if there's no tradition and there's no solid bedrock in cooking or in any of any creative activity, if you don't do your homework and find out what went before, you won't have anything to build on. And I think Heaney's saying that there, you know, and it's strike your note. Okay, he's going to Detroit, you know, and you know, people are doing different things, but. They are their own person, and that's what's going to help us. It's the arts, isn't it, really? You know, all these things involved. I've met bus conductors, you know, when I was a kid. You know, you'd, you'd have people who were taking fares on a bus, and they would do conjuring, you know, they'd take the money out, make it look like it was coming out of your mouth. Or they made an art into, and we all meet them every day. You know, people who bring that to it, the creativity, the spontaneity, the improvisation, which <coughs> brings us to the dead. Yeah. <laughs> <coughs> As we're about to have a coughing fit. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, we were talking about the Grateful Dead earlier. Um, Bring, bring it, that bring was, it all back to the Grateful Dead. Mean, it was poorly timed. Everything was poorly back timed. To the Dead. No, I mean, no, just, just about everything. Well, in a way, in a way, um, but monk. But it's good that it's interesting to me that you know part of what I was trying to point out about Joyce was 
that it's about language and music, you know, the analogy, the sound, and, you know, it, improvisation, the monk thing, and, and cooking. That's how you discover. Sometimes... It's a good guide. It's yeah. a very, it's a very mm-hmm. good yeah. guide. Cooking and, and service in general is all about inf- improvisation. You never know what's walking in the door. You never know what people are going to want. You never know what a day's service is going to be. Yeah. Um, and you have to be on yeah. your toes all day long, all night yeah. long. I'll give you one more from Joyce. This shows the measure of his arrogance, right? He says, The man of genius makes no mistakes. His errors are volitional and are the portals of discovery. And there's a bit of truth in that because you sometimes make a mistake, but it can lead you forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I know that from the visual arts. You know, ah, but maybe <laughs> it's not. You know, and you improvise and it goes somewhere else. And I think probably in your arts it's the same way. Well, Maury is a man of genius, but he's also a man of genoise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, that what? Was that was good. That was amazing. Best food pun this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. All right. Well, well, that was also a really nice theme for us to kick yeah. off. This is our the first week of our summer membership drive, and I think I want to take a sound bite of uh, your description of the importance of the arts. Very meaningful to us this week. So yes. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. That was spectacular. Uh, we are just about out of time this Thursday evening, so we're going to have to wrap it up. I wish we could stay for another two hours because I think we still have so much to talk about. But we'll have to have you guys back on in the future. Um, so with that, thank you to John Spinks, to Matt Wang, and to Mari Rubin for joining so us on much. Happy Hour this afternoon. It was a real treat and pleasure for all of us. Um, and thank you for the treats. Yes, thank You're you welcome. so much. Um, well, I'm Kat Johnson. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler. And also stay tuned after this episode. We're going to be playing our... Um, Fresh Pickings Episode 2, which is our podcast miniseries for Bob's Red Mill. It is all about organic faro. All right, that's our show. Thanks to our engineer, David Tattashore, and our producers, Coral Lee, Hallie Crane, Liz Mystic, and Hannah Ford. And see you next week. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.
Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Faro is an ancient grain with an impressive pedigree clouded by tenuous designations and contradictory classifications. But at the end of the day, it's a delicious, versatile, and relatively accommodating grain. So we're going to hopefully clear up some of the confusion and understand Faro a little better. To do that, I'll be talking to Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past, about this grain's storied history. Then I'll head into the Roberta's kitchen to get their porridge recipe and find out why the Roberta chefs are so fond of Faro. Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Stay tuned. You may know that Faro is one of the so-called ancient grains, along with quinoa, buckwheat, chia, and more. As the name implies, ancient grains are those that have been changed very little by selective breeding from their original domesticated varieties. In other words, they're basically the same as they were 10,000 years ago. These days, ancient grains is kind of a buzzword. You'll see it in newspapers' food sections, on Cheerios boxes, even Papa John's gluten-free crust is claiming ancient grains as ingredients. But obviously, they're not new. And in the past, they were better known as heritage grains. Here at Heritage Radio Network, that word holds a lot of meaning for us. So to talk about what heritage actually means, I went to Patrick Martins, who founded Heritage Foods USA and Heritage Radio Network. Patrick, can you tell us exactly what heritage means when we're talking about food? Well, on the most basic level, Cap, a heritage breed is one that's been unchanged by selective breeding or genetic modification. I founded Heritage Foods USA to create a market for heritage breeds of turkey, pork, beef, and chicken. Farmers who grow these breeds can't rely on commodity markets because the animals take time to grow. They just aren't suitable for factory farming, and that's a good thing. Heritage genetics preserve biodiversity, and ours are raised without antibiotics using traditional farming methods. Plus, they taste a hell of a lot better. I will vouch for that. So does the same concept apply to heritage grains? Totally. In the same way that heritage breeds haven't been changed to suit factory farming, these heritage grains haven't been modified either. These older strains of wheat and grains are gaining more and more attention because they taste better, they're better for the world. So in the case of meat and plants, heritage not only means traditional, it means that it's better for our health and the environment. Yes! Eat more heritage foods! When we're talking about ancient grains, faro is about as ancient as they get. I'm talking faro with Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past here on Heritage Radio Network. Linda is a culinary historian and the perfect person to take us back in time. What's the story with faro, Linda? How old is it really? Faro dates to the inception of domesticated plants and the advent of farming in Mesopotamia, or the Fertile Crescent. So we're talking about... 12,000 to 9,000 B.C. 
For a long time, Faro fed almost the entire Mediterranean and Near East. It's been found in the tombs of Egyptian kings and is said to have fed the Roman legions. Wow, that's pretty old. So is the faro that we eat today the same as what the Egyptians and the Romans ate? Faro is a term commonly used when referring to three ancient wheat varieties, or triticum. Today they're very popular in Italy. Spelt, the first variety, is called faro grande, or big faro. Emmer, which is Hebrew for mother, is called faro medio, or medium. And the third and smallest of the varieties is einkorn, which is German for one kernel. The Italians call that one faro piccolo, or little faro. So with all of these differences, who's eating what and where? Regional differences in what is grown locally and eaten as faro, as well as the similarities between the three grains, has definitely led to some confusion. Emmer is the most widely available in the United States and by far the most common variety grown in Italy. The mountain regions of Tuscany and Abruzzo are covered in it. So why is emmer so popular? Emmer is considered higher quality for cooking than the other two grains, and it's sometimes called the true faro. Spelt is much more commonly grown in Germany and Switzerland, where people use it in much the same way, as is epotre, or French for spelt in France, and might therefore also be called faro. Emmer is often confused with spelt, though it is entirely a different species. To make things even more confusing, faro and barley are often referred to interchangeably because of their similar characteristics. So when exactly did faro become popular in the U.S.? Some would say that faro is an overnight sensation in modern cuisine. It's actually been on menus in the United States for several decades, though historically it was rarer and harder to get. In fact, American chefs used to fight for supply, as faro allocation here was like fine wine. Thanks to increased availability and the ever-growing interest in rustic Italian food, faro has grown exponentially in popularity in the last few years. Whenever I look out of the Heritage Radio Network studio, I look right into the Roberta's dining room. I usually get really hungry for pizza, but sometimes I have to explore the other parts of the menu. One of my favorite non-pizza items at Roberta's is the porridge. So I went inside the kitchen to ask Chef Jackie what goes in this dish. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me in the Roberta's kitchen today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Welcome. So tell me about this dish. This is our faro porridge. It started out, we actually did a version of this dish in the winter, so it was a little bit hardier. We were doing it with kale and some other winter veg. But as spring rolled around, we kind of just wanted to create this lighter version of it because it was pretty popular. Would you like to hear about it? Yes. (laughs) So we just cook the faro really simply, uh, just in water with a little bit of salt. That's it. And then on the pickup, we mix it with a pea puree that is seasoned with shirodashi, which is just a Japanese dashi base. It gives it a lot of umph, you know, that little, like, in the back of your brain flavor that you're not really sure what it is. A little bit of Parmesan cheese, some English peas, and grilled asparagus. Right now we're using fava leaves. Sometimes we use pea leaves. It really just depends. And then we are finishing it with some mint and arugula, which we're getting from our garden. Why did you decide to put a faro dish on the menu at Roberta's? 
well, it's just really a versatile grain. Pretty popular right now, actually. People really are into grain bowls and stuff like that. So, I mean, including myself, when I go out to eat, it's like what I want to eat, some grains and veg and, you know, light and healthy. So that's kind of how we came to that. Do people usually have this as a meal by itself? Yes. Nice. Or with a pizza. Or Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Every everything on our menu pairs well with pizza. Yes. <laughs> And tell me some other ways that you like to cook and eat faro, either at the restaurant here or at home. At the restaurant, because I have access to certain equipment, like a deep fryer, I really like doing crispy grains, uh, crispy faro. So cooking it and then letting it air out a little bit so it, it loses some of the moisture, and then frying it and mixing it into other grains so you get that nice little crunch. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks, Jackie. This is awesome, and I can't wait to eat this. Uh, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Chef Jackie of Roberta's for sharing tips for using farro. You can find the recipe for Roberta's porridge at bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Be on the lookout for the next episode of Fresh Pickings. In the meantime, you can learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients and check out some delicious recipes and great coupon offers at bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Bob's Red Mill is a believer in good food for all. That's it for today. I'm Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.